This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So, how many people are familiar with the teaching called the Four Noble Truths? Let's see a show of hands. Okay. And of you that are familiar with the Four Noble Truths, how many people feel like you could say what the Second Noble Truth was? Okay. Okay. Then that's good. There weren't as many people that said that they could say it, so it's good that you're here and I can tell you something about it. But... I have these talks that are written on various subjects and I decided not to bring in, well actually I did bring it in in case I decided to change my mind, but I changed my mind. I decided to stick with just some casual discussion, casual discussion, right? (laughs) Casual discussion on how the Buddha talked about these Four Noble Truths with some emphasis on the Second Noble Truth. And there's a text of a collection of discourses of the Buddha that is called the Connected Discourses of the Buddha or the Samyutta Nikaya. And the concluding chapter on this is a collection of suttas, of discourses, about the Four Noble Truths. It's the Connected Discourses on Truths. So what I'd like to do is just sort of give you a flavor of some of the way that the Four Noble Truths appear in the teachings. To begin with, the first discourse is that long. You know, it's three paragraphs, just like that much. The next one is about the same, and the next one is about the same, and the next one is about the same. So we're not talking about long discourses here. It says, at Savati, which is a place where the Buddha did spent many rains retreats and gave many teachings. Bhikkhus, develop concentration. A bhikkhu who is concentrated understands things as they really are. And what does he understand as it really is? He understands, as it really is, this is suffering. He understands, as it really is, this is the origin of suffering. He understands, as it really is, this is the cessation of suffering. He understands, as it really is, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And then it basically repeats. Bhikkhus develop concentration. A bhikkhu who is concentrated understands things as they really are. An exertion should be made to understand this is suffering. An exertion should be made to understand this is the origin of suffering. An exertion should be made to understand this is the cessation of suffering. An exertion should be made to understand this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So these are basically the four noble truths. The first one is about dukkha, which in this translation, it's being translated as suffering. We'll also find that same term translated as unsatisfactoriness or as stress. So the first is to understand that there is unsatisfactoriness in conditioned experience. And Sharon spoke about that last week. I'm tasked with speaking to the second noble truth, which is, this is the origin of suffering. So it's asking us to know very clearly, to identify and to recognize 
what are the causes and conditions that give rise to unsatisfactoriness, to stress, to suffering, to dukkha? We have to know what it is, but not only what it is. We have to understand its causes, the origin, the origination of it, what it develops out of. Now, the next discourse is very similar. It says, make an exertion in seclusion. A bhikkhu who makes an exertion in seclusion understands things as they really are. And what does he understand as it really is? He understands as it really is, this is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And so we find that same pattern, discourse after discourse, with just a small shift in the context or in the language or in the opening line. But again and again, it basically just lists. This is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, or one understands this is suffering. Or here, what for? The noble truth of suffering, the noble truth of the origin of suffering, the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So we go on for several pages with these brief discourses, one, two, three, four, five, six. Do not think evil, unwholesome thoughts, that is sensual thoughts, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of harming. For what reason? These thoughts are unbeneficial, irrelevant to the fundamentals of the holy life and do not lead to revulsion, dispassion, cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. When you think, you should think this is suffering. You should think this is the origin of suffering. You should think this is the cessation of suffering. You should think this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Then there's another one that says, do not reflect on all these evil, unwholesome, and wrong view ideas and speculations and views and opinions. When you reflect, reflect This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. For what reason? Because this reflection is beneficial, relevant to the fundamentals of the holy life, and leads to revulsion, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. And then it goes on to say, do not engage in disputatious talk. And then they gave lots of examples of disputes and arguments about, no, the Dhamma is like this. No, the Dhamma is like that. You don't know what you're talking about. I know what I'm talking about. You're wrong. I'm right. Blah, 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 blah. And there's a whole paragraph of, you can't support your idea. You can't even rescue your thesis when it's, when it's questioned. So, and then it goes on and on. But then it again says, when you talk, talk. This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. And then it goes on, do not engage in various kinds of frivolous talk. Talk about the kings, talk about the ministers, talk about wars, talk about food, talk about vehicles, talk about countries, talk about heroes, talk about the street, talk by the well, etc., etc. When you talk, talk, this is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And then it goes on, because it's beneficial, it leads to the fundamentals of the holy life. So, how many of you talked today, or reflected today, or thought today, this is suffering? This is the causes, the origin of suffering. This is the cessation, and this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering.
Sometimes we experience an awful lot of stress, suffering, dukkha, pain, anguish, despair in our lives. And we often forget that we can speak of this in our interactions. We can identify it. We can recognize it. We can reflect on it. We can think in terms of recognizing that this is unsatisfactory. There are causes for this condition. There is a way to end this condition. And there is a practice to prevent and to basically provide a cure for suffering and stress in the future. And I think this opening, it goes on for like a dozen little discourses that are basically variations on what I just read. But it doesn't go into a lot of detail yet. You may still be wondering, well, what are the causes of suffering? (laughs) You know, what is the origin of suffering? But I think the first important thing that, that we can consider when we look at this is to know these four truths and to think them, reflect on them, ponder them, and actually bring them into our engagements. We can start to see our normal encounters in terms of suffering, what leads to greater suffering, what leads to the end of suffering. I think it's really important that these Four Noble Truths become part of an orientation and a way of experiencing life. It's the essence of what in the Noble Eightfold Path is called right view, which is basically to be able to encounter our experience, to have a perspective on ordinary lived daily experiences, but have a perspective on experiences that knows what leads to greater dukkha, stress, and suffering in life, and what are the causes for suffering, what leads to the end of it, and what can we do, what are the ways, what can we cultivate, what can we develop to end suffering in life. So as this little section goes on, there's many, many little discourses, but then we get to one that actually describes what the origin of suffering is. It says, and what bhikkhus is the noble truth of the origin of suffering? Anybody want to venture a guess? Hmm? I think there are three of them. There are three, yes, there are. <laughs> okay, so you can't guess because you know. <laughs> Anybody else want to venture a guess? Craving. Craving, yes. Okay. It is this craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there. That is, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, and craving for, this is, in this translation, he uses the term extermination, which I think is a pretty weird translation. This is called the noble truth of the origin of suffering. So, Basically, we're now looking at when we look at the causes for suffering, when we're looking at the causes for dukkha, for stress. We're not looking at blaming the government. We're not blaming our parents. We're not blaming our society. We're not blaming the economy. We're looking instead at our relationship to anything that we perceive, whatever that experience is, because that's where craving forms. 
Are we wanting it to be different than it is? Are we craving one thing and opposing something else? Is craving present in our experience? And so when we start to consider the Four Noble Truths in terms of our ordinary lives, when we think them, when we reflect them, when we speak to them, it's not that we're on our soapbox talking Buddhism all the time. That is absolutely not what the Buddha is suggesting. But we're starting to look in ordinary situations for the causes in terms of how we relate to the experience that we're having. Is there craving? What are we wanting? What is the experience of wanting? Or do we just go from a sense of being entitled to have whatever it is we think we want to blaming when we don't get it? So this is positioning and orienting our experience to understanding the causal formations through how we relate to experience, the causal relations. I'll read this again. This one's a really good paragraph. It says, It is this craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by delight and lust. So that's describing something pretty strong. In this context, craving here is a real strong craving for. The Pali term is tanha. It's a thirsting for. And when we combine that with delight and lust, we're talking about an attachment, a relishing, a lusting after. Seeking delight here and there, that is, and then the three kinds of craving include craving for sensual pleasures, Okay, we know that, right? We like pleasant contacts. We like pleasant sights. We like pleasant tastes. We like pleasant smells. And there can be a compelling kind of craving sometimes for the delights of the senses. And that leads to renewed existence. Whenever we're craving something, we are leaning towards it. We're moving out of balance and we're leaning towards it, toppling forward into the next thing, trying to get And when we're craving for something else, we are not present with what is. Often we don't even know what's really here because we're trying to get the next thing that we think will be better, will be more pleasant. So there's craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence. This has to do with the craving to become someone, to be You know, this craving just to exist, to be recognized, to be validated, to be seen. And this craving for extermination, I don't like this term, extermination. I don't know, it makes me think of, I don't know, bugs or something that get exterminated. What this is really about is it's craving for non-becoming. You know, it's wanting to disappear. It's wanting to not exist. It's an aversive response rather than the craving for existence. This is a pushing away. It can be kind of a withdrawal, a depression, an absence of connection. Whereas when we are practicing In light of the Four Noble Truths, there may be no craving for sensual pleasures, but should there be a pleasant experience, it will be fully known as pleasant. Should there be an an experience of an encounter or whatever it is, or 
uh, an experience of absence or of solitude or of silence, that will be fully known just with a balanced, clear, receptive mind. Mindful, alert, connected with the experience. So it won't have these cravings involved for becoming, for non-becoming, and for pleasures. They'll, just the flow of experience will be known without the craving that builds up either around self-experience, the, the subjective position in experience, or the thing that we get to try to hold. And then there's another discourse here. Another, these are all like this big. This one gives us tasks, functions, or what we should do in relationship to that. In terms of suffering, the first noble truth, first thing is this noble truth of suffering is known. The second is it's been fully understood and, and then it is known to have been fully understood. So we've got three here. Then in terms of the origin of suffering, this one knows, this is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. So it's recognized. This noble truth of the origin of suffering is to be abandoned. And then, this noble truth of the origin of suffering has been abandoned. Thus, in regards to these things unheard before, there arose in the Buddha vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light. So we have these three steps. First, the noble truth is recognized, the origin of suffering. The next is what do you do with it once you recognize the causes of suffering? Do you perpetuate suffering now that you've seen the causes? Do you just say, oh yeah, I saw the causes, now I'm going to go do something else? In the seeing of the causes, we see it in such a way that the craving is abandoned. We don't just see craving and keep craving. When we see craving from the perspective of the liberating truths, the act of seeing the craving, of fully knowing suffering and its causes, has the, completes this understanding of the truth through the effect of abandoning it. We could say that's something that we do. We could say it's in a task, kind of a doing-oriented relationship, that we see the causes of suffering, so we abandon them. But actually, I think it bedded in the right view of seeing the causes of suffering, that in the seeing the causes of suffering, as we see those causes as the causes of suffering, would they cease? They're abandoned. They're let go. We don't perpetuate them anymore. And we have the knowledge, this noble truth of the origin of suffering has been abandoned. We know what's happened. And I think these layers to understanding the noble truths is very important because it's these truths that is what is liberating. These are the truths, these are the essential doctrine that the Buddha taught again and again and again from his very first sermon, his very first teaching, all the way till the end of his life. Again and again in many different forms, we look at the suffering and the causes of suffering, how to find the end of the causes of suffering and a practice or a way of developing and living 
to lead to the end of suffering. There's another discourse I want to speak to about craving. It's another little short one. But first I want to see if you have comments, questions, something to discuss in this general approach to the causes of suffering. Yeah, but no, I think you're very right that craving that the Buddha is speaking about here is not just for the the things that we like, but just as much craving is about not liking. It's a movement of wanting, and wanting and not wanting are still wanting. We want something different than it is. We may want more, we may want less, <laughs> but it's still wanting. We may crave for something, or we may crave for something to go away or be pushed aside, so that there's both what we would normally and conventionally call desire or aversion, pleasant or unpleasant, that would both be included in this understanding of craving as a cause of suffering. And we can feel that tension and the push-pull in the mind, how the mind can be, how we can be blinded and our perception distorted by the craving for something pleasant. But we can also be distorted and blinded, as you've described, of people who are caught in an aversive reaction to things. This non-becoming, I think what came out of a belief at the time that was kind of a annihilationist and nihilistic kind of view where um, nothing exists i don't exist became a, a was a belief uh, that some people adhered to and the buddhists saying no that's just another kind of becoming it's the kind of becoming to the not to the negative instead of the kind of becoming to the assertion of the self And either of those, whether we're grasping after pleasant experiences or pushing away unpleasant experiences, whether we're grasping after a self-identity or pushing away and trying to not exist or assert self, all of those are grasping. another one I wanted to share with you tonight, which is about craving. This is only two paragraphs. It says, I will teach you nine things rooted in craving. Listen and attend closely. I will speak. So now instead of looking at the causes of craving, now we're looking at what develops when we let craving go. What is rooted in craving? What develops out of craving? Where is craving leading to? And I think when we look at causes, we always have to look at effects. And by the way, we're never looking at cause because it's always more complicated. There's always multiple conditions, multiple causes. But they're causes because they lead to a result. They lead to effects. And then those effects become causes for future effects or for other present effects. You know, sometimes it's simultaneously. It's not always linear across time. So I thought this would be fun to read. What are the nine things rooted in craving? One, in dependence on craving, there is seeking. Seeking. Think of all the effort you make to get the things you like, you want. You know, there's seeking, there's moving toward, there's moving out, there's a lot of effort that is made not towards seeking 
truth, not towards seeking the end of suffering, not towards developing mindfulness and concentration and calmness, but we're spending our time seeking just things that stimulate more craving. I mean, shopping is a kind of, of course, an extreme example of it. Two, independence on seeking, there is gain. Now, sometimes people will see this and think, oh, well, that's kind of good, right? You were searching for it, you were seeking it, and you got it. But this is considered to be a burden. You know, a burden. All the stuff we get, all the experiences that we then accumulate and then have to deal with and upkeep on the stuff that we've gotten and... You know, basically just think about whatever you possess and how much upkeep it takes. I just got a washing machine. <laughs> I thought that was good. I got a washing machine. And it, it was so hot, I didn't notice that it was leaking because it evaporated pretty quick. <laughs> but my brand new washing machine is leaking. So I called them, and the guy came today to look at it, and he's going to put in another one of these, like, rubbery things. But then he said, you know, it may not work, this rubbery thing, because when they brought my washing machine over, they didn't level it. And so I have a washing machine and a dryer on top of it, and it's not quite leveled in comparison to the slide of the garage door. You know, they always make the garages so that water, like, flows out, which is a good thing should there ever be a flood. But they just plunked them down. They didn't level them. But I can't reach down there. And, and it's too heavy. I can't take that big dryer off in order to tip this thing up. So now I've got a washing machine that's leaking with a dryer on top of it. And it's possibly leaking just because the little legs weren't adjusted and leveled when they were brought over. But... I didn't know that I'd never bought a washing machine before. So now I have to hire two guys to come over to turn a little <laughs> a little thing. So I sh- exactly, I shouldn't have bought the clothes in the first place. <laughs> that would have solved the problem. <laughs> so Independence upon seeking, there is gain. And gain implies all these other things that have to be dealt with. But then it continues. Independence upon gain, there is judgment. We make so many assessments and judgments of how it should be. You know, like, it should be level. (laughs) It shouldn't wobble. Independence upon judgment, there is desire and lust. You know, we have a perspective on things and we want things to be a certain way. There's lusting, there's desire. And these terms of desire and lust are, again, very strong. There's craving. And then independence upon desire and lust, now we're at number five, there is attachment. This attachment is actually referring to the attachment of self. Because in that desire and lusting of things, part of it's not just trying to make the external conditions of life in our existence and in our garages compatible with our desires there's also the sense of me and mine and i 
that arise with that. And that's the attachment that's spoken of here, is the I-making. Independence upon attachment, there is possessiveness. So now there's a very strong relationship to I want it like this. Independence upon possessiveness, there is miserliness. We don't want to share. Independence upon miserliness, there is safeguarding, and we have to protect. We have to protect it. We have to do a lot of activities now just to protect the things that we have you know, developed through this cycle, the progression that came out of just craving. And think about all the things we then do. We accumulate, we gain, we have to work, and then we have to protect the stuff. And now the ninth is with safeguarding, protecting as the foundation. There's the taking up of rods and weapons, quarrels, contentions, and disputes, accusations, divisive speech, false speech, and many other bad, unwholesome things. These are the nine things rooted in craving. Does that stimulate any thoughts? What do you see coming out of your own experience of craving? Seeking. I pictured um, either being at the internet and hitting Amazon and sort of browsing through all those things Mm -hmm. or going through the magazines and turning the page and, oh, isn't that nice, isn't that nice? And it even starts there, which I think is why it just doesn't feel right to do. There's something kind of distasteful about it. Yeah, because you can feel the pain of the mind that is lost in, when it gets lost in craving. Right. It's like it's looking for something to stimulate more and more craving. And lots of things do that, shopping and that sort of thing, the clicks. But if you've ever like played like maybe a, a, one of those video games or something that has a little sound, that you get a little bell or a little tone when you win a point, that's there in order to create a desire a sensory experience associated with the win so that then you crave. And you're not really craving the points. You're craving that little bell. Oh, boy, another bell. Oh, no, another bell. Oh, boy, you know, like, yippee, yippee, another bell. And the, the, the degree of craving diminishes tremendously if you turn the sound off. It doesn't seem as much fun. I mean, when you think about what we do you know, that, that we would actually, like, want to condition ourselves to respond to a little bell. It's pretty amazing that we, it is pretty amazing. There is anything that our minds go to. When we're tired or feel lonely, what do we crave? When we've just been insulted or somehow something isn't going right, where does the mind go to crave for something? And we can catch and or find or discover what our own kind of triggers or weaknesses are. And I think we'll find them in times when we're tired or when we're slightly hurt. You know, not so hurt that we get angry, but just slightly hurt, like a little lonely or a little something. That's a time when I think we can look for really what is the, where the mind, the gen- tendency of many minds then is to crave something. What do we crave? And so then we can see what our particular cravings are. And I think it's helpful to know what they are.
Because if they're especially unhealthy or unwholesome or will lead to much worse consequences, well, we might be able to see them with wisdom and let them go immediately. It's possible. We can see craving and abandon it. But we might want to take a more gradual approach, which is to recognize, oh, wow, the mind is craving and feel the craving and maybe give it something less harmful to hold on to for a little while something a little bit less caustic, a little bit less dangerous. But maybe we're not ready to just abandon all craving. Maybe we just make some gradual steps to start to see that. There might come a time as we're investigating what we're drawn to that we decide, no, I think I'm ready to renounce that completely. And instead of waiting for the craving for it to arise, we preempt it with a decision to renounce that. So we decide, okay, for the next six months, I will not do X, Y, or Z, whatever it was that we're drawn to. I will not take that drink. I will not smoke. I will not eat that. I will not not use that particular video game or this or that, whatever it is, whatever our thing is. I will not, you know, buy a new pair of shoes, (laughs) you know, whatever it is. And so by deciding to make a a kind of a renunciation practice, we put a little frame around whatever the cravings are that we're most susceptible to or our kind of go-to mode is because we've decided. We don't have to decide for the whole rest of our lives. We can just say one month. We could say six months. Something that feels like we could actually do it. You know, we could get through that. (laughs) We can get through that. And then what it does is it's not to deprive ourselves of all worldly pleasures. It's to put a frame around that so that in that frame we now see craving operating. Because chances are if our mind has been going too regularly, that craving is going to still arise, which means that we'll have many opportunities to identify craving in life. So we see, ah, this is craving. How does it operate? What does it feel like? How long does it last? Can I I abandon it? Can I let go of it? Can craving end without getting what it was I wanted? Because often craving will end not with the satisfaction of getting it. That does end craving. I want, a gla- I want a glass of water. I get a glass of water. I'm no longer craving the glass of water because I have it. But craving can also end in other ways. The desire for something can end because desire ends because now we're mindful of it. We're not wanting it because we're equanimous in the experience of having or not having. So we can work with craving also to start to identify it and maybe experiment with a renunciation practice. I think renunciation is really important for lay people, but I think we have to do it in little ways, and but consistent ways, and in ways that won't radically alter the nature of our lives. We use it to understand how craving operates, and then we try something and we work with it for some time, and then maybe choose something else that we want to work with. Um, it's not a matter of you know saying, okay, now I'm going to just you know renounce every, the world, renounce everything, and wander around the streets. It, it's much more investigative than that.
Addiction is a very strong form of craving, often a craving that either was very strong or was a pattern, a habit that was repeated many times. And it can become very physical. I mean, there are certainly physical uh, cravings and that the body gets accustomed to. So it's not only a, uh, I mean, that physical urge uh, can be taken up in the mind as craving. But it's also possible to then say, okay, let me be with this craving. Let me feel this wanting. Let me not just go to what I want, not just satisfy the craving again and again, because we know that each time we do that, we are reinforcing the causes of suffering. Instead, we say, no, I want to not reinforce the causes of suffering. So let me be mindful and aware of craving. How does it feel? How do we feel it in the body? How does it affect the mind? How does it affect our emotions? How does it affect our thoughts? Can we be with it just through mindful investigation in a way that understands it and lets it go? Doesn't fuel it. It may be uncomfortable. It may not be pleasant. But I think we can work really diligently with this, uh, what can be a very strong force of craving. I think in a way like in AA groups, you know, they know that they're addicts and they recognize it and are, you know, it's like, this is how it is, you know. My name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. Well, in some way, maybe meditators also have to know this, you know. We have to know how susceptible the mind is to this most basic and primal cause of suffering. You know, it's a deep, deeply conditioned orientation to all experience. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, emotions and thoughts. All experience, the conditioned orientation affected by ignorance and craving is to relate to things in a way that perpetuates this attachment that leads to suffering. So I think, I mean, we don't say, hi, my name is, is Shyla and I'm a craveaholic. <laughs> but that's what samsara is about. It's samsara, the cycle of suffering continues because we keep craving. It's worth investigating. So I hope this week you'll keep an eye out for the way that the mind craves and start to notice just your own experience of craving as. Notice it. In what ways does craving lead to suffering? How might you understand the causes of unsatisfactoriness, the causes of stress, not in all the external things we norm, the world normally blames, but instead look right into the, your own relationship to it. Is there craving? So you might just take that question, is there craving? Um, to explore this week in your own daily life or practice. Next week here we'll be looking at the cessation of craving which is about ending the causes that perpetuate craving. And then the following week, I'll be back to look at the Eightfold Path, which is the way leading to the cessation of craving.